This episode of The First Mile is supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. If you love The First Mile, you'll love Further Faster. It features interviews with some of the world's greatest ultra-athletes, climbers and adventurers about exploring the world's most extreme environments. We regularly listen to Further Faster for inspiration, and I would particularly recommend the episode with Jenny Tuff, where she talks about why she spends three weeks running through the mountains with just a backpack for company. Just search for Further Faster on the same podcast app that you found the first mile. This morning, about half past five, I woke up and went outside to go for the toilet, which is always a difficult thing when you're cosy and tucked up in your sleeping bag, and outside it's minus three or four degrees celsius and it was the most amazing view the moon was up and mount mashaputra the fishtail mountain had been hidden in cloud when we'd arrived yesterday and then all of a sudden at half five in the morning i came out to see the mountain lit up by the moon it was the most amazing sight i stayed outside for a while watching the sun come up i could see scorpio and sagittarius and saturn and mars and jupiter in the sky and then walked up onto the ridge to see the sunlight up the Annapurna range, Annapurna South. And there's no one else in the forest. It's completely quiet and it's absolutely magic. Welcome to the first mile with Ash Bardwaj and Pip Stewart, in which we learn how travel, adventure and storytelling can change you and the way you look at the world. Now in February, before the pandemic hit, Ash went off on a trip to Nepal. And of course, I insisted that he took his mic with him. And today in this special episode of The First Mile, we get to hear about some of the amazing stories and people that he came across on his journey. Just before we crack on Ash and find out exactly what you were doing on that mountainside at 5am, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with Nepal? Because you visited a couple of times before, right? Yeah, um, the first time I went to Nepal was after I finished my A-levels. So I'd gone to India to try and learn a bit about my heritage and explore the country that my dad was from. And I couldn't go without also going to Nepal, seeing Kathmandu, that classic backpacker place, a popular spot on the hippie trail, and also, of course, see the Himalayan mountains up close. I then went back in 2012 with Walking with the Wounded, which is a British charity that tries to get wounded servicemen back into work. And they were doing an expedition to climb Mount Everest. So I've actually been to Everest Base Camp. Both times I've been completely struck by the beauty of the place and by the hospitality and generosity of the people. Yeah, talking of amazing, beautiful places, Ash, I don't think I've ever heard a pea on a mountainside <laughs> being turned into such a beautiful, descriptive, um, you know, narrative, really. Well, I think the joy about going for a wee in the outside is that the quality of your toilet is determined by the view that you're looking at and when you've got fishtail mountain and a clear sky above you it was a very special moment to go for a wee so ash once you'd had this magical pee shall we say what what happened after that um well it wasn't long until sunrise so i then went up onto a ridge line and we took some amazing photographs of the sun coming up over the himalayas I mean, it was incredible. The valleys below where we were stood, because we were stood at that point at about 3,400 metres. So the valleys below us were full of cloud. And above us, it was this clear sky. And gradually, light crept back into the world. And first of all, hit the very peak of the mountain and then caught on the ridge lines. And 
as the air started to heat up, you could see these clouds starting to rise from the valleys below. It was an amazing sight. Uh, we then went into the tea house for breakfast. Endless tea, coffee, porridge, bread, Had a lovely breakfast of egg, Tibetan pancake, which is a bit like a fluffy parata or chapati, not, not quite so oily as a parata, and masala chai. And just leaving the mid-camp behind, and we're heading up onto the ridge now. It's going to be quite a steep climb to start with, but it's a gorgeous start to the day. Nice and warm in the sunshine, but there's a light breeze. So being bold and starting a bit cold, just in a t-shirt and warming up as climb up the hill. Oh my gosh, note to self, don't record a podcast when you're hungry, Ash. I'm absolutely, I'm salivating at that description. (laughs) Ah, give me some breakfast, some masala chai. It's delicious, isn't it? Lovely stuff, lovely stuff. And that Tibetan bread, gorgeous. So jealous. But let's rewind a little bit. Where exactly are you, Ash? So I'm on a trail on the way up to the Annapurna range, which is just north of Pokhara. Pokhara is Nepal's second city in the centre of the country. And I'm here with a group called Photo Journey, run by Mark Brightwell and Johnny Fenn, two ex-Gurkha officers of the British Army. And this is a mixture of trekking, cultural insights and photography lessons. So after two days down in Pokhara, getting lectures and lessons from some top quality photographers. We're now trekking through the mountains to practice that photography. We're at about 2,200 metres, which is why I'm breathing heavily as we go uphill. With a group of about 10 or 12 of us, mostly from the UK, who are getting this mix of adventure and education. So Ash, you started your journey in the city um, with a crash course in photography. For anyone who hasn't been to Nepal, can you kind of describe the differences between the city and the mountain areas? So Nepal is basically the Himalayas. That's really all it is. The southern end of Nepal starts to get a bit flatter. There's more farmland. That's where it starts to run into India. But the vast majority of Nepal is the Himalayas. So these are the biggest mountains on earth. And you can't really build a city at 7,000 metres. So all of the cities are built in the valleys in between the mountains. And the two main lower, flatter areas of Nepal are Kathmandu and Pokhara. So Pokhara itself is already fairly high. It's about 900 metres of altitude. But from Pokhara, you can see mountains that are 6,500. I think you can even see a 7,000 meter mountain from Pokhara itself and when you're in a place like Pokhara it feels a bit like most of the other big towns or cities on the subcontinent so it's crowded there's tuk-tuks whizzing around there's people on bicycles there's cars there's uh, you know street wallers selling food there's cafes there's people running up and down the street trading whatever fruit and veg they've brought in from the fields so you know it's a busy bustling city 
So it's got all the infrastructure that you would expect of tourism. It's got guest houses, it's got hotels, it's got trekking shops, all that sort of thing. Now, of course, you then want to get to the mountains. That's what people mostly go to Nepal for. So you want to get out to the trekking trails. And to do that, you usually take a taxi to go to a trailhead. And as you leave the city, it gets a bit quieter, the roads become narrower, they often become quite rutted, less well-maintained. So you'll be going up a ridgeline, a widening switchback road through smaller and smaller settlements. There'll be gaps between the settlements. And then you'll basically be in the start of a village. And that's really where your journey into the mountains starts. Oh, Ash, I remember that journey up into the mountains well. Anyone who is scared of heights and like narrow ledges, as you say, it's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. But something I love about what we're doing on the podcast is it's senses that bring a place to life, isn't it? And so often we just use visuals. But what about the smell? Can you describe the smell for me in the mountain trails? So when you're down in the city, it's city smells. You can smell the diesel. You can smell a lot of cooking because there's a lot of people nearby. Uh, There's a slight undercurrent of sewage in some areas of the city as well. And then as soon as I got into the village, I mean, you'd smell a bit of wood fire and you'd get the odd hint of people cooking, but the air was so much fresher. And then as we started to get further and further from the first areas of villages and into the forests, that's when we started to smell spring, really started to smell the flowers coming to life, started to smell the greenery, the forest. And yeah, it was quite a transition. It just smells so fresh. There's no vehicles up here. There are a few roads to the bigger villages, but most of it is all just on foot. The air, it's such a cliche, but it does feel so clean. I guess there's not a lot of carbon particulates. It's interesting you mention that, Ash, because the the lichens that we're seeing are a very good indicator of good air quality. Um, So in in our own country as well, particularly up in Scotland and places like that, you'll see actually a really rich array of different lichens um, where the air quality is very good. And then when you get closer to cities, the air quality decreases and you will actually notice distinctly less lichen. And in this amazing forest, what, uh, what are these trees? So most of the trees around us are Himalayan rhododendron. So they're the sort of origins of the rhododendron bush that we find in the UK, flowering sort of pink and purple and white. These are massive. They're, some of them are, what, 20, 30 metres tall? Yeah, I'm used to seeing things in Kew Gardens or Savile Gardens that are about my height. Amazing. Yeah, so we know a, a sort of a garden shrub, a garden bush, and here they are forests, absolute full-sized forests that flower beautifully uh, in sort of March, April time, and the flowers are high up in the canopy. If you look at the hillsides at that time, the, the whole things are sort of pink, white, Absolutely stunning. Sounds amazing. And you can see the incredible root systems here. Like we're walking over all the rocks and it's like a tangled, knotted mass of a few fallen branches covered in moss or is this lichen? I'm not really sure of the difference, if I'm honest. <laughs> Most of what we're seeing is, is moss. The stuff that's hanging down off the trees is moss. And you can see every tree is in itself supporting lots of other biodiversity. Uh, you mentioned earlier you could see the the network of roots going across the forest floor and it's very evident just how much they're binding this relatively delicate soil together. 
you get this feeling in this forest. You almost expect the trees to start talking to you. Oh, goosebumps, Ash. I love that sort of image, that mysticism that the description brought up. Um, I also have a vision of you just going around Kew Gardens sniffing flowers. (laughs) (laughs) Pip, you know me so well. I know. I didn't have you pegged as a a flower sniffer, but there we go. (laughs) Stuff like this, it really makes me happy. And seeing plants that are familiar from very uh, controlled environments like gardens where there's lots of weeding and everything's pruned and cut and then seeing these enormous rhododendron trees in their natural environment and they are massive it was really exciting because obviously all these things in gardens must have come from the wild at some point so to see where they'd come from to see them where they're supposed to be was very exciting yeah, there's something really special, isn't there, about being in a wild place and things, seeing things as they're meant to be seen, really. Yeah. So you were talking to Mark there, Ash, who was one of the group leaders. But did you sort of see anyone else on your, on your travels? Yeah, so the cities are very densely populated because it's flat, it's easy to build, it's easier to grow things down there. The temperature and the climate are a bit more benign. And then the higher up you get, the harder life is. So the fewer people live there. Obviously, population growth, people are starting to move into those areas, but it's much less densely populated once you get into the mountains. Yeah, and it really is not what I expected. It's really quite lush forest and the trail is really easy to walk on every now and again you get a few routes or a bit of a muddy patch where there's been some snow Uh, and actually really well maintained flagstone steps for the really steep sections and the tea houses every hour or so there's a lone tea house where you can stop and have a cup of tea and use the toilet if you need to and it wasn't always thus it's actually um it was less of an accessible trek um, until quite recently and, and we would have struggled to bring the same groups here as we are now just because, I mean, there used to be, when I first came up here, um, on the higher ridge there was one sole tea house um, where now there's a, a, you know, a, small, a small settlement of them uh, and these intermittent or, or sort of in-between places tea houses like we've just stopped at in the forest for tea um that's a, a welcome break for everybody um and some of these stretches could be quite long uh, and isolated prior to a couple of years ago when infrastructure started to come in so these are not really traditional nepali villages we're passing through they're uh, tea houses tea that houses and there's some you know some nepali life would have happened on this ridge before we came as tourists um but we're talking about forestry Uh, yak herding higher up and not much else because of the altitude Uh, so what we're seeing here is predominantly tea houses which are here to facilitate the treks Um, you're chatting there to mark about tea houses ash as someone who's a fan of food when i travel can you tell us a little bit more about the tea houses (laughs) Uh, yeah so the tea houses exist entirely to support the trekking industry and as mark mentioned there this altitude didn't really support much Nepali life you know there were a few people who'd go up there for yak herding forestry but they wouldn't have settled villages up there but tourism is a massive revenue generator for Nepal and they try to make it more accessible for people so that more people will come and the tea houses are the way they do that they're basically guest houses built on the mountain where you can stay where they've got blankets they've got mattresses you can get food cooked and of course you can have tea and 
it's just a place for you to stay on the mountain so you don't have to get super cold and be exposed to the elements. So did you come across any other tourists there, Ash? When we were there, it was just before the main trekking season started. We saw a couple of groups moving about, but apparently in high season, uh, every tea house is full. And sometimes you sort of have to wait to go past people up and down the trail. It's not quite the Hillary step on Everest, but the trails can get really quite busy. So you'd be able to get food in the tea houses that was perfect for when you were trekking. And the the staple of Nepalese cuisine is something called dal bhat, which is basically a lentil curry with rice. What was great is that every different tea house tended to have its own version of the pickles that went with it so some would be a cauliflower pickle some would be a tomato pickle and that was kind of how they distinguished their cuisine from one tea house to the next and you'd be walking along in the daytime and you feel that you were just starting to get to the end of your energy and starting to feel that real fatigue set in and then you'd spot the tea house in the distance with its blue roof and it was just this nirvana you wanted to get to at the end of the day so you could sit down warm up have your masala chai and eat some dal bhat oh, oh, oh yum well that's the end of day two we've got up to just above three thousand meters and we're in a place called forest camp kokar and it's on this ridge leading up towards the main annapurna range still in the forests here and it's quite a busy little place you can hear in the background the chipping of a hammer against rock as they're building another tea house and the tea houses are lovely places they they're made of stone primarily and then they've got a lot of wooden structures around it to hold up the windows and the roof and then the roofs are made of this blue wriggly tin which you can easily see in the mountains and it does make the whole place look quite cute and then the, the ubiquitous nepalese prayer flags so these are flags that are in blue yellow white, red and green and on it is written an Nepalese prayer and every time the flag flutters in the wind a prayer is said and you gain religious merit. This is where we're staying for tonight. The porters have arrived ahead of us with the bags. They all each carry two or three of our bags and we're going to settle down for the evening, have a cup of tea, and warm up and get up early in the morning to take some photographs of the mountains. So it's funny when you're in these tea houses because they're incredibly warm and I don't just mean physically culturally you feel very welcome there and they're lovely places and you're there in the mountains but they weren't there a few years ago you know as Mark says a couple of decades ago you would have had to have taken your own tents to have walked along this ridge and the path really wouldn't have been there and so whilst we were there to see this incredible landscape it's sad to think that the very presence of us being there means that more of these tea houses are going to be built and just seeing these wider impacts of human life on what seemed like an invincible landscape so we're still climbing up through the forest here every now and again you can hear the chirp of birdsong we're already quite high i think we're at about 3100 meters here we're now climbing quite fast to get up through the forest and onto the ridge. I don't know if you can hear it, but you can just about hear birds chirruping every now and again. They seem to be chirruping to one of our approach and then stopping just as we get nearby. And of course the other main sound here is the quiet thud of chopping 
wood is the main fuel source for the area, which of course has its own problems of deforestation and accompanying landslides that go with that. But it's pretty hard to get stuff up here. The only roads are those that have been bulldozed into the side of the mountains, and it's pretty soft, brittle rock. So it erodes easily. It's not granite here. And people are being encouraged to use gas more. But that has to be carried in and out on people's backs until a road comes in and then you have the associated problems with that. Every now and again you can hear logs being thrown down by the guys who are chopping just up there. Actually that was a couple of big rocks falling down from where they were chopping. So an indication of the kind of fragility that you get as a product of what happens when you have some deforestation. Ash, I think you made a really interesting point there. You talked about the human impact when we travel and also deforestation. And I appreciate that as travellers, we're being slightly hypocritical because we are becoming part of the problem uh, in very many ways if there's over-tourism, for example. And again, that whole privilege that comes with travel. I'd just be very interested to hear your thoughts about how the Nepalese are handling it. Yeah, and... There's not really a huge amount of control or protection on these new tea houses being built. And of course, these new tea houses wouldn't be built unless it was a good idea for the people who were building them. You know, it's incredibly hard work to build these tea houses because any material needs to be carried in or carried out. And they're only being built because people are going there to trek on these mountains and because the numbers are increasing every year you need more tea houses so we're going there to see these amazing landscapes and as a product of us going there these tea houses are being built which damages these landscapes and forests are being cut down to provide fuel for fires at the same time for the nepalese people they have a right to make the most out of their land and the place that they live and they have a right to make a living And we are the best source of income and opportunity for the people in these areas. So we are providing them with some opportunity to earn an income to educate their children. So maybe their kids don't have to do the same thing. But the very fact of us going there is going to result in damage to this environment. Um, I think that summarises the eternal challenge of tourism in fragile environments or or tourism generally. No, I think that's really interesting, Ash. And it also throws up a a larger question about what exactly is development and how do we develop globally? And as you say, how does each individual nation take responsibility for so-called development? I think these are going to be issues that are going to be discussed for a long time going forward. Yeah, and I don't think Nepalese people tend to think, do you know what, I would love to spend my entire life serving Westerners flying over here even though they're extremely hospitable and welcoming people who are incredibly good at doing that. I think, and from the ones that I spoke to, thinking about what their kids were doing, many of them want to go into other careers, which requires education, which requires money in the first place to do it. So Ash, you mentioned that there were porters who carried your bags at some point. Did you get to have much of a chat with the porters? Yep, and I definitely think this is one of the most rewarding things about travel in Nepal you can get to know lots of local people because they're around and they're working with you so what's your name uh, my name is Isa Tiwari and where are you from I'm from Kathmandu now 
My hometown is uh, between Chikamendu to Pokhara. It's called um, Gorkha. And what do you do here? Do you work for Photo Journey or you run the porters? What's your... Uh, photo guide, photo come guide as well. Porter come guide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there much other work in this part of Nepal or just um, tourism? Mm, just tourism. Before tourism, mm, I'm working like a hotel industry, like a waiter, like that. Before... Like uh, nine years, I'm regular with Korean client. Yeah, Korean clients. Yeah. Do lots of Koreans come here? Yeah. Lots of English tourists, French tourists, German. Yeah, French, uh, German, and uh, Korean, Chinese also. But I know Korean language also. <laughs> you speak Korean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, for the people here, tourism is a really good thing. Yeah, nice. In Nepal, tourism is good. We are uh, good income also. <laughs> Ash, it's, it's fascinating to hear how um, many nationalities are visiting Nepal. Was there a particular nationality that you encountered um, a lot on your travels? I think this is definitely something that changes over time. So, back in the hippie trail days, it was French, Germans... English, Americans, whereas now there's a lot more Korean uh, Chinese in some areas as well. There were no Chinese when we were going because this was right at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak. But I don't remember many Koreans being there when I first went to Nepal uh, nearly 20 years ago now. So that's a new thing. And I think as different parts of the world develop economically and have more wealth, then you're going to start to see more tourists from those areas. Um, one of the things that you start to see more of is actually tourists from India, which I didn't see at all 15 years ago, as India's middle class has grown. And I think one of the fascinating things is you heard the guy there talking about uh, his command of the Korean language, but it also really helps if you just speak a little bit of Nepalese. It just you know, it eases things along a little. Can you teach me some, Ash? Uh, oh, the, okay, so the easiest one, the one you should definitely know is Namaste. Namaste. That's hello. All those yogis out there will, will be re- nodding their heads and going, ah, oh, yes, I have a word of Nepali. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and Danyavad, which is thank you. Danyavad. 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 So did you get the chance to try it in Nepali, Ash? Uh, yeah, so one of the really cool things is because we were there on a photography trip, I'd spent a few days up in the mountains practicing landscape photography and then went down to the villages to do a bit more culture, actuality, a bit more portraiture as well. And these are villages which are inhabited year round. They're Nepali villages. They're not like the tea houses which exist there just because of the tourist trade. They exist there because Nepalis live there. They farm there. And we were in one of the lodges and a couple of the guys decided they would come along and share some of their Nepali music with us. And it was a great chance for me to practice a few words of Nepali, Pip. So after coming off the mountain, I've come to Luang village and this is much lower. I think we're about 1400 meters here. And this is where there's rice paddies. This is permanent villages year round. There's 
villages of about a thousand people or so and the other part of the photo journey group have been down here for a couple of days have much more of a cultural experience wandering around the village interacting with local people and doing much more portrait photography and as you can hear in the background they're certainly having a bit of a cultural experience and it's the last night that they're in this particular village so they're having a bit of a party with the locals So what's your name? My name is Babu Bullet. I'm from here, Rang Village. What is it we're hearing now? What is this? Is this traditional dancing from this village, is this? Yes, yes, sir. Uh, our village is coming here for dancing. Uh, then our Nepali culture here, we are most welcome, uh, your England people, our village is good. We are very happy. With this dancing, do you just do it for tourists or do you do it for weddings and birthdays and everything as well. Yeah, no, no, Nepali culture. This one is Nepali culture, like that. Okay. Yeah. And most of your visitors from England, are they from China? Oh, all people is coming here. Every week, every month, all people coming here. So, like for that. Very good. So, nice to meet you. Uh, so, what's your name? Ash. Ash. Ashwin. 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 Okay. Nice to nice meet you. Nice to meet you. Daniel. You are good. So I like you. Thank you. I like you too. Okay, thank you so much. Have a good night. Okay. See you later. Okay, thank you so much. I love that. I, I like you. I like you too. <laughs> oh, Ash, making friends wherever you go. <laughs> I do try, Pip. No, it's great. And, and it just goes to show that if you spend a bit of time somewhere and get to know people, rather than just turning up, taking some photos, eating some food and heading off again, you have a much more enjoyable experience. It's nicer for you and it's nicer for the people that you meet as well. And and talking of that, Ash, sort of going to places in order to take photos and things, I think we need to address the element of exploitation here, really, when it comes to travel photography, because there's a fine line, isn't there, between interacting and having genuine experiences with people and then um, yeah, ex- exploiting people, essentially. So how do you get that balance right? How do you make sure you take respectful travel photos and ensure that it's more of a, a collaborative process rather than a, a purely um, taking process? I have found this hard for myself in the past. And I think the thing that I've come down to is how would you like it to be done to you? If somebody was taking a photo of you, how would you find it done in a way that doesn't make you feel like you've been exploited? And I think there's a couple of ways, well, a couple of things that you need to do. The first is to speak to somebody before you take a photograph, say, can I take a photograph? And then show them the photograph afterwards. I think once you've established that level of consent and rapport, and also making sure to think, If this person says no about me taking a photograph, how will I feel about that? Now, if you feel pissed off, then you're probably there for the wrong reason, because then you're like, you're only there for the photograph. But if you're like, actually, you know what? I don't mind them saying no, because I've enjoyed that interaction, and it's great that they feel okay to do that. I think that's a fairly good guide. First of all, how would you feel about it if somebody was taking a photo of you and therefore behave in the way you'd like to be spoken to? And then... If somebody says no, are you still okay with that? I think that's a good guide for the sort of morality of photography. 
Mm. It's a tricky one, isn't it? I think so. And I guess it depends where you are and what kind of things are happening. If you're in a place where people are running up and down taking photographs all the time, then you're just going to be like these bloody photographers or these bloody tourists taking photos all the time. You're not going to have a nice experience, which I think is one of the reasons why if you spend a few days in a place, then you're not just grabbing a photo of somebody. You're spending some time there and enjoying their culture and their home uh, rather than it just being a chance to get some good snaps through your Instagram. Well, exactly. We banged on about it enough on the podcast, Ash, but it is down to connection, isn't it? And that's the joy of travel and, and having genuine connections with people. Yeah, and making an effort and being authentic in that. And like authenticity is such a bandied around word, but how do you actually make that happen? And I think it is just speaking to people and spending some time with them. And Ash, key question on a slightly lighter note, did you learn any more dance moves? I mean, I'm a pretty exuberant, if uncoordinated and incapable dancer. And so I did throw down a couple of my best Bollywood shapes on the dance floor and picked up a few from the Nepali guys as well. I'm glad to hear it. It reminds me of you when you were saying in our episode with Leverson Wood that you met him whilst throwing a shoe while on a dance floor at him. <laughs> I wasn't naked this time, Pip. Thank the Lord. So how long were you there in total, Ash? I was there for 10 days. So I spent three days in Pokhara, then four days up the mountain then three days in the village and then left on my 11th day. So we've spent the last four, five hours, four, walking from Luang village to Dampus. And this is the final night for me of my time here. And it'd be nice to get out walking in the low hills through paddy fields, past Buffalo and actually in villages where people live rather than up in the mountains where people are there mostly for the trekking and the walk is reminded me strangely of Devon and I think it's because you've got lots of dry stone walls bits of ivy creeping out there's lovely tiny little flowers popping out all over the place there's some orange ones a few blue ones which actually look like tiny little orchids and then you've got cute little cottages next to run-down farmhouses. And I think the sort of gently rollingness of it as well, with tiny little farmsteads, altogether reminds me a bit of Devon. And we've come to Dampus because it has the best view of the Himalayas, of the Annapurna Range. Uh, and unfortunately, it's completely overcast. So no great view from today. But fortunately, I can live in a sense of smugness because I'd worked hard to get up the mountain to see the and a Perna range from the Mardi Himal trek up on the ridge. So you certainly have to earn your views in the Himalayas. And this trip has really been a great way to experience them. Oh, what a shame you didn't get that view right at the end. Well, you know, I did see the mountains from much closer and at altitude where there was no mist or anything in the sky. So... You know, don't boo-hoo for me too much, Pip. I didn't get to actually see them. Yeah, don't, don't worry, Ash. I wasn't in this sweat box of a recording sort of pit that I'm in and your blooming lovely trip to Nepal. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not losing any tears for you, Ash. But it did sound like you learned a lot sort of about tourism and how it's impacted the area. 
Um, it does sound like a genuinely wonderful trip. Yeah, it was really, really good. The guys that I went with were excellent to spend time with as well because they know Nepal so well from their time in the Gurkha Regiment, which we'll touch on more in the next episode. Uh, but also for me to see how tourism has changed in Pokhara over the last 20 years, because I went to Pokhara in 2001 when I first went there. So to see how much it's grown, to see how many more people are there, to see how the demographic has changed, to see the impact on the mountains, you know, it's really complex stuff. And I think as you and I, who are both people who talk about travel, who sort of like inspiring people about travel, I think it's also important for us to reflect on the reality of the impact of travel on places, both good and bad. And it was great to return to Nepal and also great to start to think about some of these questions. And I'm really chuffed, Ash, because we're going to be talking more um, in the next episode all about um, the Gurkhas, because your guides, Mark and Johnny, uh, were ex-Gurk officers. And I think that's something for me that I'm really keen to find out more about is how Gurkhas operate in the 21st century and just what a big part the Gurkhas play in Nepal. Yeah, and I don't think I'm spoiling this for too many people if I say that what the Gurkhas are is they're Nepalese people who serve in the British army. So they're British soldiers, but Nepalese people, which is a very unusual thing, if you think about it. And they have been part of the British army for over 150 years, and they're an integral part of who the British army is today. And I think it's that relationship, that connection, that draws so many British people to Nepal in the first place, actually. I'm looking forward to hearing all about it. Thanks for listening to that episode of The First Mile. Pip and I have really enjoyed making the show and we would love it if more people could hear it. So if you've enjoyed that episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find The First Mile. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. The review doesn't have to be long, even a thumbs up will do. Then send the link to this episode to a friend who might be interested or take a screenshot of this episode and share it on social media. Make sure you tag us on at Ash Bardwaj and at Pip Stewart, and we'll be sure to share it too. Then go put your feet up and have a nice cup of tea. So thanks guys for listening and we'll see you next time on The First Mile. This episode of The First Mile was supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. Each episode of Further Faster is packed with inspiration and insight about extreme exploration and adventure, and we listen to it whenever we want to blow our minds about what's possible. Just search for Further Faster on your podcast app to find it.